0: Another episode of Thick with Fan Hoops, where ball is always life. I'm your host, Karthik, here with my co host, Nathan. What's good, Nathan?
1: What's up, man? Um, we missed you last week. I uh took the reins, never seen a performance quite that was like Donovan Mitchell 71 without Darius Garland on the court. That's how it felt.
0: Donovan Mitchell and uh, Robin Lopez combining for 72, right? <laughs> Something like yeah. that.
1: That's like the uh, Kwame Brown and Kobe combining for 83 versus Toronto.
0: <laughs> yeah, but hey, you carried it, man. Um, I mean, we all know that. Uh, I mean, I've always known that you can carry a pod for hours if you wanted to. Uh, not only do you have the knowledge, but you have the gift for Gab and the love of your own voice, as I like to say. So I swear I
1: this wasn't planned to have you just. Give me flowers here, right at the top. But yeah, I'll what the it, listeners don't say... know is that
0: you begged to do the solo. I was actually available all week, ready to do the pod, <laughs> you and you wanted uh, to go
1: rip on your own. Hid you in the uh, hid you in the basement somewhere. I was like, absolutely <laughs> not. Multiple people were texting, me like, I'm happy to do a guest spot. I was like, no, we're booked up. Sorry.
0: Um, no, but honestly, it was it was good. It was, um, and and you know, I've I've got a lot of thoughts about your power poll. I'll save them because for the most part, thought it was spot on. But you no, know, I had. Some issues here and there, most notably with some of your comments about LeBron. But, you know, I figured without me to push back on some of those real time, you were just gonna I was going to keep going.
1: Skip Bale is running unfiltered <laughs> on LeBron. Exactly. But, you with know, the, Shannon. The, the thing is, like I was thinking about this, like the gimmick of the tiers actually kind of creates chaos in ranking the teams truly. Like I think I had the magic above like the Lakers and the Wizards and the Bulls. Like I wouldn't pick any of the magic against any of those three teams, for example, in like a seven game series, but just trying to trying to position and group teams together, you end up with a little bit of just weirdness in how you would rank. But I think roughly speaking, you know, you know, the thing that's funny is after I did it, and I didn't move Denver to, to the top tier. They had a monster win versus Miami. They had another monster win on Monday night, I think versus, or Sunday night versus, uh, Celtics and I was like, shit. This this is pretty much telling me like these guys are legit. Like, do you think that they are at the tier of the Bucks or Celtics, kind of at that very very top? Like, these are the premier title contenders.
0: I think so. Uh, I think my one of my issues with your poll was the Nuggets are probably up there. The Pelicans, I think you gave their flowers too early, and mm-hmm. the Celtics. You made a comment about them being on a separate tier, which for a while seemed like that, given the recent state of affairs. And that blowout loss to OKC, they've got I some issues back to, to deal with. Yeah. So yeah. other than that, though, I think fairly on point. The Nuggets are interesting just because we haven't seen the fully healthy version with this MVP version of Jokic yet. Uh, so it's yet to see how they do in the playoffs. But given the West, the state of the West, there's no reason to believe they can't get to the finals.
1: So. Well, the absolute worst thing about all of this is, is what we all know is coming. The Death Star, the Golden State Warriors getting it. healthy. They're putting <laughs> together wins without uh, you know, without Steph Curry who may come back as as soon as in the next week or so. Uh, they haven't had Wiggins for 10 plus games. He's starting to get in condition to come back. This is about to get very very troubling for those of us like you and me who live on the the grave of Warriors success.
0: Clay put up 54. He's feeling himself. You know, it pulls back to scoring these, you know, these games. And Draymond Green, did you see the the little statement he put out today?
1: I didn't. What did say? Put saying? out this
0: weird press release looking thing and it said, I'm uh, back, and he was talking about his podcast, and it was like the most cringeworthy it was
1: i like, hated Who that asked so for this? Much. I didn't even know he'd like, stop
0: doing the podcast.
1: Don't ever sacrilege Michael Jordan and that press release format to talk about your fucking podcast that yeah. everyone pretty much goes out of their way not to listen to. I was not happy about that. Yeah. That would be like us almost like us putting out the you putting out the the, the press release after missing last week <laughs> that you were back. Um but anyway, so so we should actually start and 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 we did not necessarily want to to, to avoid the subject, but we did want to quickly talk, and you know, obviously this is a basketball podcast, uh, but the biggest story in sports um, was from Monday night, the Bills-Bengals game with DeMar Hamlin kind of going down um, after tackling T. Higgins. We later found out was not very clear at the moment and started to come, you know, more details. He, he had cardiac arrest uh, that night on the field, got resuscitated twice, it sounds like, based on what we've heard from his family cpr the defibrillator now still in critical condition i think still uh not yet awake i think he's still sedated um it was absolutely terrifying situation so first and foremost without saying we obviously sent our thoughts and prayers to, to, to him his family it's been such a bizarre and scary situation i don't like We've watched a lot of football, a lot of basketball, a lot of sports in general, and you always see every type of injury. I don't know that we can count too many instances of that. Like people have brought up uh, Ericsson from Denmark and, and some other instances, but dude, I don't know if you got a chance to watch it, but even live, it was like, oh damn, he just got a concussion. Let's you know, let's get him. Like he was almost like the oh he's he fell down because he's concussed, and like to see it go totally 180 from even that, which is a serious injury, to something much worse was. Uh, I, dude, I, I was really shook. I'll be honest; like, I was like, like almost quivering watching watching it all unfold that night.
0: Yeah, it was a really somber scene because we've watched. I mean, how many times in football do we see the cart come out, a player's down for an extended period of time, right? And then it's the fear mm-hmm. is always it's a spinal cord injury or something. They can't move him. He's just lying there, paralyzed, possibly to hold all the teams center around, pray. We've seen that. I think the difference this time was, like you said, the extent of time he was on the field, the fact that they had to do CPR, the fact that they just pan to the players' faces and seeing all of them in tears, and just that was something I've never seen before. Um, You know, we always see the players with their heads down, praying anytime there's an injury, but that raw emotion from both Bills and Bengals um, just showed how... I don't know it just made them feel more like humans. Um it's a weird weird thing to say but in the sense that these are people and yeah this is a sport it's for entertainment but it's their lives at stake as well and this is a, one of their brothers, one of their teammates and to all of them I'm sure it's like hey that could have been them. Right? It's a freak incident. We still don't know all the details but it's it was definitely an eye-opening moment for everyone. And it's not even, you know, with football you can complain about CTE and the hard hits. And, Something like this just felt –
1: This was different.
0: It was a little bit different,
1: right? And the thing is a lot of people were dunking on the NFL for the lack of care about uh, player safety, and this is just yet yet another indication. I actually think there's two different components to this, right? There's the rules-based desire to protect players, and then there's the sort of response-based desire to protect players. So what I would mean by that is they've made a lot of rules in the last five to 10 years that have cleaned up some of the kind of ugly hits that we used to see, um, even from like our childhood in the nineties into the two thousands. Uh, certainly as late as like Antonio Brown getting absolutely rocked by Von is perfect, things like that. I think a lot of those rules have gone away actually much to the chagrin of fans, right. Who are like, this is soft. You might as well play flag football, blah, blah, blah. And then there's the application component. We saw it actually with Tua. A few weeks ago in Cincinnati where he was clearly concussed stumbling around and they let him continue playing right and you think about it like okay well the rules are one thing but your application of those rules are another thing and that was similar with this instance where this this horrible uh injury takes place once he's gone they're like okay five minutes to warm up now the NFL is pushing back and saying no this wasn't the Way it was, etc. Who knows what the truth is? The fact is, Joe Buck announced it like four times, being like they have five minutes to warm up. So someone clearly told him that. But that's, I think, the the second nature of it. it's like you can fix the rules because that's what you do in the in a time of uh, it's almost like peacetime rules, right? Like there's nothing that's gone wrong. There's no actual crisis, but your ability to stick to them in the face of losing revenue or you know, losing a big spot to, to gain notoriety, whatever it is. And that was obviously a critical game, not just being on Monday Night Football, but for playoff positioning and everything else. If this was Colts Raiders, you'd cancel it without thinking for half a second, right? So the fact that you do include the situation, which I understand that any business is going to, but you're not able to ever make the decision away from what's best for the business. That's the hurdle that the NFL has not been able to get over. And I'm not sure that they are going to get over it because it drives too much of the nature of the, the, the sort of, Money printing enterprise that they've created.
0: Yeah, it, it. I mean, this is the first time they've really been put in a difficult position. Remember COVID? We had all kinds of games, situations in which teams, uh, like the Ravens game, I remember, right, had to be rescheduled, and because of the, the extent of cases. But those were at least done earlier in the season. You had bye weeks. They had ways to make it work. You planned a Tuesday. You planned a Wednesday. This is the first time when there was literally no easy fix. And so, like you said, it really puts them in a predicament of you have to make a decision now. And it's a matter of do you cancel the game? Do you tie it? There's huge implications. And we still don't know what they're going to do. We know they're not going to play this week. But ultimately, this could move the playoff schedule altogether. If they decide to fill in the bye between the Super Bowl and the playoffs and move the playoffs out a week so they can finish this game, it has huge, huge implications. But I think you know the NFL can do that. The one benefit is playoff scheduling, the arenas are all available because, you know, they, they keep them available because you don't know what the schedule is actually going to be come playoff time. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not an issue of a conflict with so this concert or, you know, sometimes other scheduling issues that arise. But but you're right, it's it's the first time we've had to see the in a true predicament in terms of what will you do in this situation? And at least for now, they did the right thing, right? Despite their initial reaction, but we'll see what happens now moving
1: forward. Yeah, COVID's a great example because they were pushing games all over the place uh because of situations and they had played on Wednesday, they played on Tuesday, Monday at night, two games Monday, but it never ended up factoring in come playoff time for whatever reason. Maybe because they stopped testing and they're like, we're not taking chances here. But like it didn't affect the playoff schedule. And then pretty much in January, February-ish, like is kind of when everyone was vaccinated, et cetera. So you sort of had much more relaxed version of the rules. This is a single instant instance and, and and someone kind of hanging between you know life and death, frankly, which is just a terrifying proposition. You talk about it in hyperbole, right? You'll put your life on the line for this game, blah, blah, blah. You don't think that that ever means literally. And so it's not just about him and his well-being. It's about the players, his teammates, the opponents who just saw that and you're asking him to go back out there. But to your point, it's like, well, they can't move the Super Bowl, right, because everything is already catered around that exact weekend, hotels, whatever, whatever. So how do you fix it within the context? I always thought the best case scenario was just call it a draw and move on. Yes, that gives Kansas City the number one seat effectively. There's a lot of implications to that. But, you know, you can't predict something of this magnitude taking place at this point in the season. You kind of just have to, you know, make the... The, the best of a, a terrible situation all the way around because everyone's focus, no matter what you do, is going to be, rightfully so, on on Hamlin's kind of well-being.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, to be completely frank, it's easy to say that the Bengals and Chiefs should look at this and be like – sorry, not Bengals and Chiefs. Bengals and Ravens should be like, you know, we call it a draw, whatever the playoff results happen. I mean, there's a playoff game at stake. There's revenue at stake. If the Ravens don't win that game, they don't get the, or the, sorry, if the Bengals beat the Bills or tie with the Bills, their odds of winning the division increase. Ravens may not get a playoff game, right? If they get eliminated. And so it has an impact on the revenue of these individual franchises. So it, it becomes a really murky issue. It's easy to say, just take the time, move on. But for these franchises, there's a lot of money at stake. So right, there's no ideal situation.
1: Yeah, I mean, but just horrible seeing that i think on the field first and foremost kind of in that moment at the very micro level it was uh all i could watch that night i think a bunch of people have talked about how well the ESPN guys have done i think they did that's a really hard situation to kind of continue talking through continue finding different angles while obviously a lot of them being former players are super emotional about about what they saw Um, and they didn't hide from it
0: they they addressed it head on they let their emotions kind of show like lisa salters as well was getting very right, and so I think that was they handled it well. It's a tough situation. Um, it's yeah. great to see that his charity is page has raised millions now. That's um, yeah, right. I, I and by all accounts, he's a great, it. great guy, does a lot. You know, he had his charity toy drive, he was doing like, um, so it's good to see that response from everyone and the support. And now we just got to hope that everything ends up being okay. I
1: really cannot wait, uh, for him to see that because. He had a twenty five hundred dollar target on there, and now it's what six million or something like that. Um
0: oh, and so wow! That's
1: gonna be an awesome. That's yeah. gonna be an awesome feeling, I think, for him. And hopefully, you can see that sooner rather than later. But all right, we just wanted to point that out. I think obviously we'll we'll switch to kind of basketball topics and go back to the normal back and forth. But I think worth addressing and and and, and worth mentioning, given how how important it was in, in the discourse this week, and and how important his well being is. So. What do we got next? Scoring binge. Donovan Mitchell, as aforementioned, 71 on on uh, Monday night, actually going on at the same time as this game. So let's start with Mitchell. And then I know you want to get into kind of this overall scoring binge that's taken place in the league. So Mitchell created the second most points in NBA history, 71 points, 11 assists, total of 98. Six or ninety-nine points, I think, in total created, which is second all time behind Wilt's hundred-point game where he had two assists. And it's pretty stunning because they needed every last one of those points. They won in overtime, they made a huge comeback. He has this crazy uh, you know, missed free throw, rebound, put back to, to send it into overtime to begin with. I don't know what the hell the Bulls were doing defensively as far as not guarding him uh, with more than one person, especially when they didn't have Mobley and they didn't have Garland. That being said, I mean, Mitchell has proven to be a shot maker of this level. We've seen it in the bubble. But to see it on a night like this, just a random night to put up 70 in a win, I mean, that was really, really special. And it just shows you the shot making prowess of so many different guys around the league.
0: It was... uh... (laughs) I mean, you get kind of um, what numb to these scoring outputs these days, like as we'll talk about. But seventy is still a number that what Booker last before that David Robinson.
1: Uh, well, Kobe, and then oh Kobe, yeah, yeah. Then prior to that, David Robinson, David yeah.
0: Robinson. So
1: it's rare. And
0: Mitchell, like you mentioned, the bubble. We we I've often talked about the bubble as uh, there are a lot of big scoring performances. From Jamal Murray, from TJ Warren. Donovan Mitchell had 57, 51, and 44 all in that same series against the Nuggets. And you, you kind of dismiss it given the, the circumstances, but I think now that, that looking back at that performance, he clearly has it in him. And this 71 point game was off the the back of 25 free throw attempted. Mitchell only averages six free throw attempts. He's not Harden. he's not even a LeBron, right, who gets to the line that much. Um, mm-hmm. but when he does he's got the scoring bag and tool set to, to really put these kinds of big numbers up so um, what's also crazy is prior to this game he was struggling like they were in a slump I think he was not doing well in the clutch uh, in the last four games before this he was averaging 18 on 24% shooting from field 24% on, from three so it kind of came out of nowhere and even tonight he kind of came back down to earth he did not have a great shooting night in a win but it's it's just a an example of what we we've been seeing on a nightly basis, and mm-hmm. as I'm, the fifty points don't surprise me anymore, but seventy is always special. Like that is still right up there, I mean, almost that's that close.
1: It's just a lot of baskets, dude. Yeah. and he did it on thirty four shots, by the way, which is incredible. Like I don't know that people like that's it's hard to put into words how much you have to be on fire to, to sort of do it that way. And, and by the way, not to be uh, forgotten, Clay Thompson, who went from 54 that same night, he was, I think, the only player other than himself to score that many points with two or fewer free throws. And so Mitchell obviously was crushing it from three from the field. He actually also got to the line, I think, 16 times, made 15. Clay did it on pure jump shots, which is like just pure clay. And it's just... Like you said, it's a rave shot making. You got to be in your bag. And like Mitchell had been in a little bit of a slump. But if you look at his numbers this year, he is so far above his career highs at basically everything, despite playing with more offensive talent than I feel like he had in those Utah seasons, right? When you have a guy like Garland who had his own 50 point game this season, you have Mobley who needs touches. You have even guys like Karek Slavert, Kevin Love who who can make shots. Cleveland went all in for, for Mitchell and they're probably not quite there yet this year, but they've got to be overjoyed with how this trade's worked out, especially when you think about what happened to his Utah counterpart uh, being sent to Minnesota. So I just think, I mean, what is it? Cause give me the stats that you have on, on sort of this scoring binge that we've seen this year. Cause I'm trying to figure out what is causing it because we're not just talking about 2023 versus like, Two thousand three or nineteen ninety three. We're talking about just from last year alone, it's up big time. um So, what do you got for us? And, and sort of let's maybe unpack wh- why we think some of this is taking place.
0: Yeah. So, teams in you know, all the service teams are averaging one hundred and thirteen point six points a game. That's the highest since nineteen seventy, um when the scoring was just bonkers. It's the the I think the efficiency is at an all time high. So, this is the highest effective field goal percentage ever. Volume of three-point attempts, surprisingly, is only the third highest. So, what we've tended to what we've tended to see in the last couple of years is that more and more threes, more and more points, make sense. The three-pointers actually aren't up; it's, it's just that everyone is scoring in a much more efficient clip. And we actually have six players averaging more than thirty this season so far: Luca, Steph, Embiid, Giannis, Tatum, and SGA. And that number goes to nine if you lower the, it to 29 points a game, because then you get LeBron, Mitchell, and Durant. Now, here's the crazy thing since 1970, only two seasons, there have only been two seasons where even three players scored above 30. So this is an anomaly and is something that we have not seen before. And one of the, the, you know, in terms of one of the reasons why, it's not just the, the three point shooting, the spacing. The mid-range game has been perfected. So when you remember Jordan, his last two seasons with the Bulls, he led the league with forty-seven percent shooting from mid-range, which is a great number. Now we know defensive rules have changed; there's a lot of things that are different. But today, there's twenty-two players who shoot better from the mid-range, including Kevin Durant, who's like a blistering fifty-eight percent or something.
1: He's a god. Yeah, he's just a god. And so
0: I think it's not just efficiency from three, efficiency at the rim, which we've seen the last couple of years. I think that efficiency is now extended to the mid-range. And all parts of the court are just seeing this incredible rise in efficiency and teams just understand, offenses just understand how to operate and get the most out of every possession.
1: A crazy stat for you on Durant. He is shooting 63% from the field on two-pointers, right, which is a career high from him. Only 12% of his two-pointers come at the rim, which means that kind of, like, if you shot 70% at the rim, maybe for a guy of his size it would be a little higher, but if, like, a guard shoots 70% of the rim, that's, like, amazing, right? That's really, really good. That's not quite John Morant maybe, but it's probably, like, prime John Wall, right? Something like that. Duran is barely taking any shots at the rim and he's shooting at nearly the same level of efficiency because his mid range is just deadly. It's just automatic. Even tonight, right? You look at a game like tonight, they're playing the bulls. He's got 39. He's 13 of 19 from the field. This is to talking to about, uh, about your point about going numb to this stuff. Like you look at it, this, you don't even bat an eye. And this is like nightly stuff from whether it's him, whether it's a bunch of other guys in the league. Uh, you know, we, Luke, i think Giannis was the first guy since who knows when to go back to back 40 and 20 um and it's just a variety of different ways i think one of the beautiful things about this season is guys are doing it you mentioned the mid-range guys are starting to do things a little bit with a little bit more variety a little bit more um in individualism uh right so we we, we went so far over into this like three-point bonanza where every guy just shoots 15 threes a game that's certainly happening to some degree right like Lamelo is jacking threes at every turn obviously you got steph clay dame anthony simons etc but lucas scores differently right demar de rosen scores differently lebron is obviously having a different way of, of getting getting his points ad was starting to play more inside joel is freaking insane from all over the court you know Jokic can just punish you down low but can take you and hit the mid-range like it's so much fun because all of these guys have their own style and it's all effective, which is probably also why the defense is, is struggling because like, there isn't a playbook on how to guard modern NBA offenses anymore. They've now evolved past just the threes are better than twos, let's all we focus on kind of offense.
0: Yeah, you raise a good point because if you look at the top performances, right? Mitchell 71, Luka 60, Embiid 59, Booker 58, Giannis 80, 55. All these are different archetypes of players. You, you mentioned Clay scoring 54 and less than two free throws. Then you have Donovan Mitchell who shot 25 free throws and scored 71. You have Embiid, a bruiser. You have Steph up there with a 50-point game. And Darius Garland had a 51-point game. And I think it's... In the 90s, the 90s were dominated by big men, centers, right? In um, the 2000s, you had your, your power forward era. I think now what's so great about the NBA is you have just this plethora of archetypes that can dominate on any given night. It it could be a point guard. It could be a shooting guard. It could be a small forward. There's no one specific type of play style, specific type of um, tool set that works better than another. All these guys can put up 50. And that's, like you said, that's what makes it so fun because it could happen in any given game on any given night.
1: Yeah, have you ever seen the uh, clips of Kobe, Jordan, and Embiid, no. where they'll play like the clips of basically Kobe doing like his oh. move and yeah, Jordan yeah. doing the fadeaways. And he's literally doing the exact same thing. He's yeah. obviously just 7'2 and like 280 pounds. So he looks different, but he's doing the exact same move. Like, if you sent him back 20 years and asked, like, I don't know, Carl Malone to try to guard this guy, he'd be like, This is sorcery. Like, I don't know. All I know how to do is pick and pop 18 foot jumper. Like, I don't know what's happening right now. So. It's definitely a talent binge that I don't think we've seen. And that's led to a scoring binge What I'm still not able to figure out is these guys were all there last year. So what exactly is unique about this season? The only thing I could come up with is they've done so much to try to improve the travel schedule, to try to improve the way that games are played out in a more restful manner, despite uh, every player wanting to rest regardless of that. So like, the you know, stay in a city, play them twice or, you know, trying to limit road trips or trying to limit back-to-backs as much as possible. I think all of those things have really helped um, and you just feel fresher. It's almost like being in the bubble where you're just playing basketball. You're not dealing with all the extra stuff. As luxurious of an experience as that is for them, it's still wearisome, right? So I think getting rid of that to the degree that they have, I think it's also helped guys just lock in and just go ball every night. Um, plus, if nothing else, your favorite theory about how they don't go out, they just play video games. And so they're not hung over anything like that.
0: See, I think it's the young. I mean, look, there's still the LeBrons and KDs putting up bonkers stats, but it's the young guard that's coming up. They're not hung over, man. They're, they, you know, it's not only staying. I, I think all your theories are true. I think it's these guys just put in more work into the game. I think there's also minor things like, you know, something like the take foul being removed. Um, you think about it, teams aren't going to use that take foul. A, possession, a fast break possession can actually finish to completion, right? So that also helps with the scoring and the efficiency. And I think all these small things probably contribute. It's not like this season's a huge departure from the last couple of seasons in terms of scoring. Mm-hmm. It, it's relatively similar, but what is a huge departure is just the number of single night greatness. Uh, and maybe, I, I don't know, is it stars resting? Some of these guys don't play every night, but even that... Yeah, I mean, some kind of that of is...
1: It's kind of like the stars resting gives themselves uh rest, but then it also means like if your teammates out, you're going for it, right? Like Giannis, true. I mean, granted, Chris Middleton's actually hurt, but like a night like last night when he just absolutely torpedoed the poor Wizards, uh, you know, he was just having fun with it. And Drew had just come back, so he wasn't being super aggressive, et cetera. AD so without just LeBron like Giannis, had his 55-point yeah. game, right? Yeah, exactly. LeBron without AD. Um, you know, obviously Luca without any good teammates, which is just sort of every night for him, um, clay without Steph, you know, all those kinds of things. A lot of it is just like opportunity. And one of those games, because of how talented you are, you're going to pop. It is funny to me that Durant is the only guy who doesn't have like his career high. And he's probably what, one of the three greatest scorers who's ever played this, this game. His career high is like 54. Isn't that funny? Like, he just, it's just 26 to 33, like, every single night.
0: It's, yeah, it's weird. Because how effortlessly he scores, you would think he'd put, like, you know, 60, 70-point games together, but.
1: And he could, by the way. He's talked about this, right? He purposely doesn't do that because it's not in the flow of the game. Like, he's kind of like a basketball perfectionist almost, in a way.
0: Yeah, that's true. But, um, you know, the other thing I want to ask you, though, is, is this a, You can look at it two ways. One is, this is the most fun basketball has ever been. The second is, the scoring is getting out of control. Like, when we're talking about 130, 140 at night, we're talking about an all-star game. When every other, when every possession is just a bucket, that also can take away from the enjoyment of the game. So, the NBA, you know, has done this in the past where they take a look at the rules, and in the past, when scoring was down in the 2000s, they, they changed a lot of the defensive rules. Do you think that they are going to look at this and try to help defenders out and maybe curb this in any way? Or do you think this is only good for the game?
1: No, I think they should find a way to curb it. Um, I don't know what that looks like as far as, you know, do you you wouldn't do something like bring back, you know, sort of illegal defense, but maybe it's a handshake, right? Maybe it's the physicality that they start allowing a little bit more, something like that. Because to your point, it's like, dude, it's like when you play on Madden and you beat, you're playing on rookie mode and you win like 69-0. Like you're not like that excited. And my brother used to do this where he would play actually NCAA, right? You remember the old NCAA games. And because you had to run up the score to get all the sick recruits to come to your program. And he went to Clemson, so he would play. He'd pick Clemson. He would just schedule these FCS Southeast. That was the way they would picture Division two teams. And he would just truck them, right? And I was like, dude, you can't be having fun. And it would be like, CJ Spiller has 45 touchdowns on the season. I'm like, this is not fun. Like, and he'd just sit there for hours. And I'm like, that's kind of what it feels like on some nights. Like, even the Celtics gave up, what, 150 um, to, to the Thunder yesterday? And they didn't even have uh, SGA, right? And so I don't know. Like, whether it's an effort thing, whether it's a rules thing, or maybe the three pointers create such high variance that if you're making them, you know, there's no chance. And if you're missing them, there's no chance. They got to do something that I think creates a little bit more of like just the teeniest bit of, 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 of kind of um, resistance, right? Because right now it's just free flowing all the time. And I think that there's almost like too much it's indulgent.
0: And with too much variance, like, You can't have a meaningful takeaway from any game. Like, when OKC beats the Celtics by 33, you're not even that impressed. You're like, just a bad night, whatever, right? You don't take away from it that... Maybe you take away the Celtics are in trouble, but it could happen to anyone. Any team on any given night will get rocked. Um, So, I, I do think they should do something. I think they need to help defenses out. It's so hard to defend in today's NBA. They've changed some rules the kickouts, the obviously a couple of other things they've done to help defenders, but a night to night basis, it feels like it is impossible to avoid a, a blocking foul. It is impossible to avoid kind of fouling a shooter. I think those still need some, some tweaking.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think the take foul thing is a really big change, but there's more that can be done and we still have to, you know, Having just gone through the World Cup, we have to find a way to curb stop, uh, flopping here as well because I think it's a problem. And I think it's something that guys are getting to the line. I mean, we probably are backed off from like the peak hardened days of foul hunting. We're not quite there yet, but I think it's still pervasive enough around the league that they got to figure out how to, how to kind of take a beat on that.
0: And the last thing is like the last two-minute reports. I'm starting to wonder okay, – the, the NBA did it to be transparent, but what does it really serve? if it's not going to change anything. Like, I saw a graphic that the Kings lead the league in fouls called against them, or incorrect calls against them in the last two minutes. And, you know, they had this whole last two-minute report just because people were more angry because the NBA acknowledges that things go wrong. I don't know what the answer is, but I feel like there needs to be something. Like, do they penalize refs? Do they, um, you know, promote refs who have fewer bad calls in the game? I don't know what you can do, but I feel like there needs to be something happening
1: there. I think the last two minutes rep- report should never exist. I don't need that transparency when you're openly telling me you screwed us. Well, no, um, I'll,
0: t- I'll tell you why I like it. I like it because if you're arguing with a friend who's on the other side okay,
1: of the Okay, yeah. You have concrete if you can win your like proof proof you debate. Then like so if, no.
0: if this was there for game six, 2002, right?
1: Kings Lakers. That would, hey, guess what? Let me promise you something. You would not sleep any easier at night because you know what you saw and everyone knows what you saw. And we don't need a last two minutes report. We need a last 48 minutes report on game <laughs> six to, to, to highlight all the just atrocities that went on that night. So I don't think that would help you feel any bit better about that.
0: You might be right. You might be right.
1: the speaking of, speaking of Kings, are they playing like 120-game season this year? I feel like they're on like literally every night. Dude, they
0: played the fewest games out of any team.
1: Oh, maybe they're just catching up now because I – I, and maybe I've been starting to watch because I'm so mesmerized by the Sabonis-Fox pairing, but I've probably seen them like three times in the last week, and I just noticed they're playing again tonight versus Atlanta. Their
0: schedule starting to ramp up. They've only played 36 games where most teams are in the 38 range.
1: Um, mm. So – Okay. 38, 39, A lot more actually... Kings to come. Yeah. The it's Kings odd. will be featured uh, heavily when we get to the uh, All-Star Selection podcast. Oh, yes. I'll, I'll put it I... out there like that. Um, oh, yes. But we're going the other direction today, right? We're going to talk about panic meter teams. Um, so basically, we, there's a few we could choose from. We picked four, two each, but I think there's probably even more than that that you could probably put in here. Some teams probably aren't very high on the panic meter because they're just resigned to their fate of being sort of meh. Some are obviously openly tanking, and then now this group is really about the ones who thought they were gonna. this season was going to go a lot differently. So... Who do you have as the first team that we should grade on? Is it, is it one to ten? The panic meter is it one to one hundred? One to ten. How, how accurate? Okay. All right. Who's first?
0: I'm starting with the Timberwolves. And I'm putting them at an eight point
1: five. <laughs> See, we should have just done a hundred and then you could have done. Eighty five. Eighty five. Fine. Right, we'll
0: do one hundred. Eighty five. Um. I think that the crisis point for the Timberwolves. Okay, look, obviously it starts with the Gobert trade. You've got um, the number of picks they gave up for an aging player who's only declining in his at rim protection, um, even through the season. I think he recently he's even struggled more than he did at the beginning. Um, not a great fit. You know, we've talked about Gobert. A lot of people talk about Gobert. I think that the reason the panic meter is high is this team looked like they have a, had a great core. You had Anthony Edwards. You had this All NBA talent in Cat. D'Angelo Russell's playing fine. I think now, when you look at it, you see Cat's Cat as a leader, as the fulcrum of that team. They've constantly been chemistry issues, no matter what version of the roster they've built around him. Whether it's the Jimmy Butler version, whether it's ones of a couple last years, there's always been questions about his leadership, his ability to kind of play defense and really be a leader of that team. And I think those have not been answered. Anthony Edwards, as talented as, as talented as he is, and he's still very young, So, but this season you'd hope to see a little bit more growth, a little bit more maturity. I've not seen that. D'Angelo Russell, continued to be a sieve. So I think all the pieces start to look a, less, a little less shiny. Um, and Gobert is the big keep, heaping pile of shit in the middle of all of it, where it's like, what do you do with this? Because... You have no roster flexibility with draft picks. Um, You're committing a lot of money to these guys. Your best hope is blowing it up. And by blowing it up, I mean trading Cat or making a drastic move. So I I think that the Timberwolves can't – things are not going to get better. That's why I put them at an 85. They need to do something drastic, and it probably starts with moving Cat because you want to build around Anthony Edwards. So what do you have for the Bulls?
1: I got them at a 9.9. Oh, I was actually underselling it. This is partly a panic meter for the Timberwolves and partly a panic meter for my own basketball acumen since I was so high on this team preseason. They suck. And the reality is, and I've talked about this a bunch, they look like they hate playing with each other. Um, They have absolutely zero leadership in the locker room. There's not one guy who can rally the troops and sort of bring everyone together. I think Kyle Henderson might be the like leader in the clubhouse at this point, which is not saying a lot because he doesn't really speak. Um, the Gobert trade is going to go down as one of the three worst trades in NBA history. Um, he's 30 years old already, so it's very possible and probable that his best years are behind him, especially since he relies more on his size and athleticism than he does his skill set. So to speak, he's his rebounding is down. His efficiency, you know, sort of his 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 work on offense is is li- more limited than it was in Utah. There's just a lot that you're looking at, and I mean, I guess if the question is panic meter for this season or panic meter of a franchise, those are probably two different questions, right? The panic meter for this season, maybe it's a little bit lower, 9.2, 9.1, whatever it is, because you could still make it into the play-in and hope the cat gets healthy and you sort of resurrect the ship. The long-term outlook is much more bleak because, like you said, they traded everything under the sun for Gobert, and it's unclear that they acquired a guy who's really going to ever make a another all-star team uh, or even really be a focal point on all defense teams, which at least he was doing, um, even if his offensive production wasn't there. Now, if you want to look at a silver lining, I'd point to two things. One, Towns has missed 17 to 38 games right with the calf strain. He should be back at some point this season, and hopefully they can sort of pick up uh, where they left off with him last year because he's really struggled this year, and I think the adjustment with Gobert was difficult. So maybe having had more reps on that, he comes back looking a little bit cleaner, and it's a better fit offensively. Two, Anthony Edwards, who I've been very critical of this year because I thought he was going to take this star turn, like you mentioned, that was really going to lift him into sort of like top 20 conversation in the league he's starting to show those flashes now, right? If you look at his splits, um, you know, in just December in 15 games, he was at 25, seven and five on 47% from the field, 41% from three. You match that with the 22 games in October and November. And, you know, he's looking at worse efficiency, shooting 34% from three, you know, 22 a game, 23 games. So he's starting to get better across the board, which makes me think he's finally in shape and he's finally getting comfortable in the offense. So hopefully that, is a sign of good things to come, um, you know. But I think they're just too inconsistent night to night, and they don't have enough depth to to make up for the fact that if Edwards is you know not shooting the ball well, there really nobody else because Russell's always going to shoot the ball poorly, and Gobert can't do anything. So how do they generate offense? How do they generate stops even when their main guys aren't on?
0: And they lost a lot of depth last. I mean, one of the reasons they're so good is was, was their depth. And they lost a lot of that in the trade. And when Pat Bev was the, the local leader, the heart of that team last year, but as good as that is, you need your one of your star players to be that leader. The fact that Pat Bev had to be the main guy in that leadership role, I think says everything about the, the lack of leadership on this current squad. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, look, they'll be better. They started off horribly. They'll have time to gel. It's just the the long-term outlook does not look great. And... Mm-hmm. Into the West being as good as it is, like this team is perennially going to be stuck in that playing
1: tournament. You know, one thing I've been wondering about, and I have not heard anybody say one way or the other, so maybe you have, or maybe I've dismissed it. Did they not include D'Angelo Russell in that trade because they wanted to keep him as part of this, like, big four? Or because Danny Ainge didn't want that contract back, and so they had to piece together other contracts like Malik Beasley and Patrick Beverly to match Gobert's salary?
0: I actually don't know. It's a good question. Um, Minnesota is higher on D'Angelo than the general perception.
1: Because if they did that for the purpose of keeping D'Angelo, like intentionally keeping him, that is malpractice. And if they got hoodwinked by Danny after giving him all those picks who wouldn't even take on one bad deal, that's ridiculous to get just dominated like that in trade negotiation. Neither outcome is good for Tim Connolly. I just don't know which one it was.
0: It's a little bit of A, a little bit of B, probably. I don't think Ainge wanted that contract. But at the same time, the Wolves probably had a better opinion on D'Lo and thought that he could be a part of this four. I mean, the talent is there, right? So if you think that... Look, our defense, D'Lo's defense, is not going to matter as much. We funnel everything into Gobert. He becomes, you know, he's still a good kind of third scoring option. You don't have to worry about the defense as much. You can live with it. I can see themselves talking them into it, or talking themselves into it. But
1: yeah. Um, All right. Next up on the panic meter, I'm going to give you the Phoenix Suns, twenty and nineteen in the play-in now after losing again tonight without Devin Booker to, to the Cavs. They won 64 games last year. They made the finals year before that. So where are you on the Phoenix Suns?
0: I'm going to go 55, 5.5. Yeah. Um, I'm not as big of a panic. And here's why. I think they were a full-blown panic in the offseason. They could not have had a worse offseason, all the turmoil around Sarver, um, the Aiden contract. Um, you know, all kinds of drama around this team, the way they ended last season against Dallas. I think when I look at this team, you still ha- take solace in the fact that Devin Booker continues to to blossom. Um, Mikel Bridges, you, you know, you, those are your two cornerstones of the franchise. Chris Paul, yes, you know, he's not doing much. And Aiden is still a valuable piece. He's still an asset uh, as much as so you can still move him granted only after a certain date, but they can still move them if they want. I don't think they're saddled with any crazy contracts. And, you know, this whole Jay Crowder situation, whatever, it's Jay Crowder, right? So I, I don't – they're not as good as they were the last two years. 2019 is definitely not what they projected to be. But if you remember, their over-under was supposed to be like 11 wins less than how they performed last year. So people expected this team to take a big step down. So that's why for me, the panic is not as high as others might have. it.
1: Yeah. So I think where I'm at, I'm probably at like a 65, because when I think about panic, I think about expectation. Right. And this is a team who, you know, we all predicted that maybe their window was closing. Chris Paul certainly did not look like even the finals version from the year before when he got scrapped in the playoffs by Dallas. Um, DeAndre Ayton had his issues. Like you said, the offseason was more turmoil than the regular season has been. But I look at this team, they're playing, you know, just above 500 ball. And it's really a question of like, is the window completely closed? And I'm starting to believe that it is. When you look at some of these other teams in the West, like the Pelicans, who probably don't fear them with a healthy Zion. Memphis definitely doesn't fear them. We know Dallas and Luka don't. Denver's not going to with the with the loaded squad. Golden State's not. And so Clippers aren't, you know, so you just kind of go down the list and you're like, who is Phoenix going to be feared in the playoffs? Not saying that all those teams would just wax the floor with them, but it's more of like, in the playoffs, who are you going to necessarily feel comfortable going up against among those top five? And I don't necessarily pick, a lot of, pick Phoenix over a lot of those teams. Now, Devin Booker has missed a bunch of time, and he's going to miss more time with this hamstring or groin that he has. In the 29 games he's played, they're 18 and 11. So that's the silver lining, um, is that they're really good when they're, you know, all NBA level, all-star starter kind of level player is on the floor. Makes sense. I just feel like as the team has gone on, they've started to count on him more and more. um, And you're seeing Chris Paul being able to take less of a burden than he's ever had before in his career. And that makes me worried. Because the playoffs, you can certainly account for Booker. Part of their brilliance was Mikel Bridges and Chris Paul and DeAndre Ayton. And some of these guys are not stepping up the way I thought they would be in a pretty low-stakes situation without Booker on the court. Um, You look at the other night when they got absolutely housed by the Knicks. It's like, dude, you know, Ayton, what are you doing? Like, Paul, like, these guys sucked. And it's the Knicks who are fine, but, like, put up a reasonable performance. Even tonight, they give up a big lead to Cleveland, lose again. You know, Donovan Mitchell is gassed from this game, and he's still out there. You know, Bridges shoots three of 15, right? and 15 points. Like, you got to be able to bring it more when your team needs you, and it just doesn't seem like they all have that ability to go to fifth gear. Only Booker does. And if only Booker does, I think that's easier to stop in the in the playoffs because he is not a Luka-level player, right? So he's kind of that next year down, which means I think they have a pretty capped ceiling on them.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. No one on that team, you know, Cam Johnson settled into his role. Mikel Bridges is not a – he'll have his big scoring nights, but none of these guys are capable of bailing you out on any given night. Um, And you need that. I think every other team in the West has that. Memphis has a guy like Desmond Bain. Um, You have – even the Kings, a guy like Malik Monk off the bench can be a microwave. And, And the Suns, if things aren't going well for Booker, from you can't count on Aiden. You can't count on some of these guys. I agree. But ultimately, you know, it'll be interesting to see how the rest of the season plays out. Like you mentioned, the record with Booker is still good. I wouldn't panic right away, but this is one of those teams where every it's like the, the uh, Clippers um, under Dock towards the end, where things seem like they're okay on the surface, but all of a sudden, the bottom can fall out. Um, mm-hmm. There's a little bit of that underlying tension, I think, that's still there. Um, this is a team we've seen that can collapse, that's not as mentally strong maybe as you want them to be. Um, and I don't know. It'll, we'll see if Monty Williams can can keep the ship
1: upright. I think the Doc Clippers comparison is apt, and lo and behold, they do have one similarity. It was, it the, com- <laughs> it was the, the commonality. End, so. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's there's a reason he's been on four or five teams in his career at this point. It's not totally chance. Um, yeah. And so we might be sort of at the end of the line of in terms of his grip on on that roster. So, all right. What do you got next?
0: I got the Raptors.
1: The Raptors. So, by the way, um, while we were talking, they were down 16 <laughs> points with a minute and 15 seconds left and sent it into overtime somehow. I have no idea how Insane. this happened. Obviously, we were recording, but... I have to go back
0: and watch the highlights. Um,
1: I really just need to see, yeah, what were the sequence of events that allowed that to happen? Um, okay, I'm at a 73 on the Raptors. I think this was a team, if you remember, their over-under, I think, it was 46 and a half. Uh, they gave Philadelphia a really good fight in round one. Some people were like, oh, my God, they're going to come back from 3-0 uh, after the way they they started that series they've just had a lot of guys who have stunted their growth or regressed. Um, So obviously the biggest name there is, is Scotty Barnes, right? When you look at what he did last year versus this year, either it's that sophomore wall or he didn't work on his game or something happened where he just doesn't look like the guy who won rookie of the year. In fact, he looks more like the guy that was thought of as a project coming into the draft and seen as a big risk. Hence why Jalen Suggs was ahead of him on a lot of boards. Obviously Barnes is the better pick still, but, you're starting to see some of those signs as to why people were a little bit worried about him. Two, guys like um, Fred VanVleet looked like they're breaking down a little bit, right? These dudes, I don't know if you've seen their minutes. They play absurd minutes. Like Nick Nurse has got them in this eight-man rotation like it's game six of round two. So I could easily see Fred VanVleet start. He's a small guard. He's been through some health challenges. And he's starting to break down aside from Siakam and and probably Ananobi to some degree, nobody's really gotten better. Um, and it kind of makes you wonder, like, how do they improve? Because they're sort of stuck in this purgatory where they have a ton of talent. Some of it's young, some of it's kind of in prime or just post prime and there's not a real avenue to getting out of that middle class. And last year they were the six seed. Now they're looking into playing or below and I'm worried because it looks like they don't have a direction. And while Masai is the guy you'd want in charge of almost any situation, but certainly one that involves is taking risks, I think he's going to have to get a lot of big moves correct to get this team off this trajectory and back to one that looks like they're going to be in title contention.
0: Yeah, they need to uh, – so I'm at a 70 out of 100. And I think the ceiling of this team seemed kind of last year when you saw the rise of – I mean, Fred VanVleet had an awesome season. Scotty Barnes looked like he's going to be an all-time, not all-time player, but they were not even willing to move him for Durant if the reports are true, right? The fact right. that in a trade for Durant, Scotty Barnes was a
1: no-no. Um, and Zach Lowe, by the way, also was like, I wouldn't do that.
0: Yeah, and it's like, and, and to your exact point, I'm glad you brought up, he's looking like the player that we, kind of the scouting report said coming out of college, which is worrisome because... um he it's not, he's regressed a little bit, and he'll still he can still be a good player, but I think that the problem is they put so much value in him that at this point his that value is greatly diminished, and he's not maybe an asset that you can move for a guy like Durant like you could last year. Siakam so, yeah. on the age side, it, it he's been amazing, but also slightly older player now, and you just don't have a lot of upside with this roster. I think they built it to be long kind of all switchable. It sounds great in theory. There's not enough shooting. Um, Some of these guys are still very passive. At the end of the games, it's always Fred VanVleet breaking you off the dribble and doing the same thing, possession after possession. The offense is not innovative. And there's reports that maybe they're tuning up Nick Nurse, which I don't know if it's true, but if you remember, this team had chemistry issues with Siakam, and this is all during the Tampa era of the Raptors, COVID. We kind of brushed it off, but this is not a, a team that is has not had its share of kind of dysfunction internally. So I think that the, the reason I put it at 70, it's not the highest, but it's still high enough that they need to start moving some of these pieces. I don't think they can keep running back this roster.
1: The Tampa Raptors is something I know took place. <laughs> I understand that that happened for an entire year. I have no recollection of it. I have zero memories of that team or what was like the fact that they just played in Tampa for a whole year and they couldn't live at home. Like you said, it just gets swept away. Like that's a pretty wild <laughs> situation in the middle of a pandemic where, assuming their families lived in Canada, they had like no access it's to it for Toronto and Tampa's season. far. It's not even close. Yeah. And I'm, I'm pretty sure that you couldn't go into Canada. Um, you or you have to do the two week quarantine, which means during the season you would never have enough time to do that. So, kind of a wild, like just sort of moment in, in time that that we just amongst the many weird things that COVID has brought us, and you know, that is part of that. And that's so, why
0: these players got even more sick of each other. Maybe because they spent too much time together. <laughs> it's actually season. a
1: great point. It's right? a really great point. Like every game, every day is a road trip, no matter what. Cause you're just living in like some like makeshift, I don't know where they live, condos, hotels. And none of these guys are baller enough. Like LeBron, if he was happened to be on the Raptors and this took place, like he would have had his whole complex set up in Tampa and he would have just been living there. Like he had been there for 10 years. He'd be going to bucks
0: games. It'd be. Yeah.
1: Siakam was probably just chilling in like a residence in like with, you know, suites, just extended suite room with a couch (laughs) and like the little kitchenette. Like he didn't have like crazy digs like that. So, I could. I bet this thing is still taking a toll two years later. Yeah, but the one thing I I do, I do think is is true is that there's just no late late game shot creation. Siakam, for as good as he's been, and I'm probably higher on him than most, uh, based on our thread, um, is is clearly a a second guy, right? He can't be the best player on your team. We saw him succeed in that second best player, and he's even better than he now than he was back then. And he's still only 28, so he's got a ton of value in the trade market. If I were them, I would take a really long, hard look if this thing doesn't turn around by the all-star break at, at sort of starting to sell. Um, I don't know how much value a guy like Van Vleet has, but you can get the farm for both Siakam and Ananobi. And so you look at that as a starting point, and then maybe a team like Washington, who's just desperate to be you know relevant and has big issues at point guard, will give you something of worth for Van Bleet. So you that's Beal? kind of the way I not Beal. No, because if they were going to trade for Van Bleet, you'd keep Beal. But like, for example, let's say you threw Will Barton is expiring, right? And you threw three of the four young guys or two of the four young guys that we have. Kispert and Rui. A
0: poo-poo and, platter. Yeah.
1: yeah. Poo-poo platter. But for a guy who's 29 years old next season, who's clearly declining, who's going to be up for another contract soon and who's not going to be part of your long-term plans. Maybe you take a flyer on a couple young guys, who knows? They could probably do better than that, but that's the kind of deal I'd expect. Um, You know, the Knicks were a team that loved Van Vliet during his free agency, but they now have the better and younger version of Van Vliet in, in Jalen Brunson. So they're off the table. You just kind of have to look around at who would need a point guard, who might be a good fit. Maybe even, you know, Maybe even the Clippers, who have this uneven play between Reggie Jackson and John Wall, and it's not really working, and they're sort of disjointed. Maybe that's a good situation where you take a lot of pressure off of him, especially in late-game situations, and allow him to just be more of an off-ball player who's catching and shooting. I don't know. Point being, I would probably give serious thought to to sort of unloading some of your premier assets this year versus waiting you know, six months or 12 months too long.
0: Yep. Yeah. No. All
1: right. Final team. The Atlanta Hawks playing, like I mentioned, your Sacramento Kings tonight. They are seventeen and seventeen and twenty at the time of this recording. So where you have them on the panic meter?
0: I'm at a fifty five out of a hundred. Um to me, Atlanta, like the expectations are not as high, right? The expectations were Artificially inflated because of the run they had a couple years ago, getting to uh, past Philly, play Milwaukee, stealing a couple games. Um, I think the panic for me for them is more around the Dejounte Murray trade, which as he's been solid, but in terms of fit, it's raising a bigger question around who actually fits around Trey Young. Like it, it's not a coincidence that you see Kevin Herter go and flourish in a team like Sacramento. And a guy like Budanovich is good, but, you know, still you have now DeJounte Murray and, and this, all these guards that come play alongside him, this team needs to do something more drastic to, to go somewhere. And, and John Collins has been a rumored trade candidate for a long time now, but I honestly don't know what his value, if his value is that high. Like Kings fans are hoping to get John Collins who giving given up Harrison Barnes, maybe a pick, right? Like, and that's not moving the needle for Atlanta either. And their team that is will definitely not want to go into the luxury tax is they got rid of Kevin Herder because uh, they didn't want to pay him, um, and so to me and and this now with all this noise around Trey Young and and about him being kind of a diva right and a coach killer he's getting this reputation whether it's it's deserved or not it's reminding me of Kyler Murray two mm-hmm. electric players but. And on the surface, everything seems fine, but you start to hear behind the scenes that they're harder to work with, and clearly, what they're put, the team that's being put around them—they're not winning. I think that the Hawks should make a move sooner than later. Um, I only put it at fifty-five. I don't think it's, they're not bad. They're still solid. They'll be fine. But given the expectations and that- Trey Young, like if this is your guy,
1: I don't know. But think about what you just – so I'm going higher. Maybe I'm just – I'm th- I'm just more emotional than you. You're just like a very <laughs> even keel right down the middle. Everybody's at 55. Listen, I'm going 80. Think oh. about what you just okay, said. Okay,
0: you went 80. You acted like you were about to go to 95 or something.
1: <laughs> I saved that for the T-Wolves. <laughs> um, I got more mad at Gobert as I was looking through some stats <laughs> while we were talking after we finished the T-Wolves segment. Um, but anyway, like for example, tonight, 17 and 12 but ant is a plus eight he's a minus eight um but anyway think about what you just said that is a major existential question if trey is not the guy that you had envisioned when you'd built this entire team around him after the conference finals run you give him the five year super max which of course you would if he's not the guy if it's a kyler kind of situation supremely talented doesn't play well with others a little bit of a you know, prima donna in some ways and a lot of handholding, but doesn't produce on the court with the, the level of expectation you have given everything you've given. That is a franchise altering realization, right? For the first time in his career, you've heard him now his name being swirled in trade talks. It's not always the Hawks would be wanting to trade him. It could be Trey is going to want out at some point, et cetera. But the point is if, if he was as good as, we thought he could be if he was as good as atlanta had envisioned him to be those two would be interlocked for not for life but at least for 10 years so if the fact that we're getting to that conversation already in year four of his career with a deep playoff run under his belt is a big deal and it's not unwarranted because like you said all those things are true not to mention aside from any of the off-court stuff the on-court fit is really challenging Um, When you talk about a guy who plays no defense, who has the ball in his hands almost all of the time, who isn't shooting the ball well at all this year, he's career low, 31% from three, 41% from the field. So yes, he's got numbers, 28 and 10. And yes, he is an electrifying offensive player, but this is one of the harder fits in today's game to make work, harder superstar fits, I would say to make work. Like, is he going to be on my all-star team? Well, yes, before they had their latest swoon, where now it looks like they might not even be, you know, in the top eight. We'll see where, where, they, where they're at when we have to make our picks. But even if you say, okay, this is a bonafide all star, he's going to make eight to ten all star teams. What do you mean this guy's, you know, figure it out around him? And Bill Simmons this morning made the comp of Stefan Marbury, which is someone we've always tried to attribute it to Kyrie in a way. I actually think it's much more applicable, though, to Trey Young. Interesting. And, yeah. Maybe, maybe that is the the version of him, the version of his career that we see. And I think that's a big problem before you even get to all these other guys that they've paid, whether it's DeAndre Hunter averaging 15 a game, making 90 million, John Collins, 125 million dollar contract, averaging 13 a game, Bogdan Bogdanovich, $72 million deal, Clint Capella, $85 million deal. They've paid everyone. And the one guy they let walk out the door is probably the best player to be next to Trey, which is um, Kevin Herter. Um they replaced him with DeJounte Murray, which is fine, but they're going to have to pay him a 200000000 dollar deal in a couple of years. And by the way, they will because they gave up three unprotected firsts. So they have picked this team. They've made their bed. And if you're having questions about the guy right at the top, the whole house of cards could collapse very quickly in Atlanta.
0: So I'll I, I'll change mine. I think it is a lot higher. I forgot how much money they got committed to these guys and the pending kind of DeJounte Murray contract. <laughs> so you're, you're kind of locked in. And the only move you can make now is something very drastic, like just move Trey. And I don't know if they're ready to do that. He's the face of the franchise. They've built everything around him. Um, So it's easy to say, you know, the one that's often thrown around is what if they did a cat versus Trey swap? Minnesota gets, you know, this dynamic point guard. It frees up their log jam in the front court. And then the Hawks get the big man that they've never, you know, and they can move on from John Collins. You've got Cat now. I don't know. But, uh, yeah, it is definitely dire. Um, And some of these teams, man, it's like the the talent level just changed overnight. Like, two years ago, it feels like the league Mm -hmm. is so much stronger. Like, New Orleans in the West. Like, some of these teams have all of a sudden, Sacramento have come up. And in the East, you have some teams as well, right? Cleveland overnight. And so Atlanta two years ago looked like that kind of the I mean the bell of the year, ball
1: dude but that year Atlanta was five the Knicks were the four seed yeah <laughs> and um, they had they didn't even have Brunson they had r- r- second year R.J. Barrett a rookie R.J. Barrett I can't remember second year R.J. Barrett Julius Randle coming off of his third team and like Evan Fournier and Derrick Rose that was the squad
0: exactly and they haven't done much to get that much better right DeJounte Murray fine big upgrade in talent but this team is still floundering while the rest of the East is getting better. So, uh,
1: yeah. I. Who is the guy, by the way, that you would put around Trey? I don't know. Like, is it like a Joel Embiid type? Who <laughs> that's, yeah, Manny? give
0: him like one of the best centers in the
1: game. Yeah, like, I guess. Give that's him that's Jokic, like, give like, him oh, Embiid. Would, would it be like Kareem from 78, <laughs> Jordan from 93? Would that be helpful?
0: I don't, you know, honestly, uh, Sabonis. I, but that even that is like too good. I feel like a guy like Sabonis who unlocks the. The problem with Atlanta's offense, they get too mired in kind of. There's not as much movement as you'd like from a team with Trey. Like look at Trey and Steph, Right, Stuff is the most obvious comp for Trey. It, they're not the same player at all, right? But well, I don't this, like
1: that comp. I don't, I don't like that th- comp at the same Why is that I, at the, well, I don't understand that comp whatsoever. What is the comp? Because they can shoot from deep?
0: They can shoot from deep. They're good. They're smart passers. They can be willing passers. Um, Dude,
1: but Steph... I mean, Trey is more hardened than he is Steph.
0: Yeah, I agree. That's what I'm saying. He doesn't play within the flow of an offense. He he, he gets... It's a lot more stagnant. But you put him in a system, right? A like Steph also has the benefit of playing with Draymond and growing up in that system. So maybe you get a center who is a little bit – it's not Capella. It's not just pick and roll. It's a center who can kind of play high post. You have Trey move more off ball, kind of change up his game a little bit. I don't know.
1: So like Sabonis is like the discount version of Jokic, right, in some yeah. regard, in terms of at least playing out of the high post. But even he feels kind of too good. Which is, I guess He's Sabonis, but that would be a defensive nightmare with those two. I'm trying to think about maybe, like, you know, Bam, right? Bam is a guy who, because he's a better defender than Sabonis, he's not quite the passer, but he's a good passer. Um, that would make a lot of sense. And Miami would be a great place to get his ego in check quickly. Um, Pat Riley is running the show. Eric Spolster is running the show. It's not the Trey show. Every single star has bought in, including LeBron. That would be ideal for them. They just don't have enough assets to make that move. Whether or not they would want to, I have no idea. But they just their their they're war chest is empty. So
0: that's true. That's true.
1: But so. all right. And then the last team. I'm we're not going to talk through it. But I was going to say the last team I was going to throw in. This is a curveball. Just give me a number. The Clippers.
0: Forty. 35. I, I look I, the Clippers are underwhelming um, started off hot been slumping lately I just think that they knew what they were signing up for there was a lot of risk attached with going after Paul George Kawhi we know it works when everyone is healthy and they have the right pieces it may not end up working but I don't think like they've laid they made their bed now they're gonna lay in it you know what I mean like they've sold their future they understand there is no alternative They're going down with the ship no matter what. So that's why there's no panic for me because it's like, all right, if it works, it works. If it doesn't, we messed up. But there's no plan B. They're not moving Kawhi. They're not moving Paul George. The rotating cast of characters around them, I don't think it's going to make that big of a difference. They can do some fine tweaks, but ultimately this team is going to rely on the health of Paul George and Kawhi down the stretch.
1: So you're saying they're on the – top part of the Titanic after the other side is already tipped and it's like, there's no more panic. It's just playing. The symphony is playing as the, everyone is sliding into the water.
0: I mean, yeah, exactly. No, It's more surprising now if Kawhi plays like multiple games in a row that, then it is that he doesn't. Right. So if, if they get a healthy Kawhi, healthy Paul George, you take your chances and then you live with the results in the postseason. They'll make the postseason.
1: His not numbers so are very cr- slowly trickling back to something we had to him, expect of him, still nowhere near like peak. They're starting to get a little bit back towards that, but when you watch him play, you would think he's like a 52-year-old dude at the YMCA. So.
0: Which I don't get. Like, why has this dude's ramp up been so long? Like, it's not like they've forced him into action early. Like all this guy's he's... been doing is rehabbing. <laughs>
1: I think he's got some like real leg issues. That's the only thing I can say. I think this quad—you know—they've talked about this degenerative quad since the Spurs days, and then you throw in the ACL. I don't remember if it was on the same leg or not, but it really feels like he wakes up every day and it takes him like an hour and a half to go through a morning routine that allows him to like get out of bed properly. (laughs) Yeah. So,
0: and and the other uh, reason I'm not that worried about them is we saw the Clippers last year, not a great record, and still make a lot of noise in the postseason. Ty Lue's a good coach. They've got talent. They can still make it work. So,
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm probably around where you are with them. But, you know, the clock is ticking on, on this team because I think they play the most games in the league prior to the All-Star break. So, in a way, it actually hurts them to be that active. Although they can get some rest on the stretch, A, their record is more spoken for than other teams, and B, the number of reps you can get with your full complement of roster is, is less so after the All-Star break if you just don't play that much. So, Yep. All right, that's a wrap for us. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Thick and Thin Hoops. Please follow us on all social media platforms. Um, yeah, I think uh, it sounds like uh, I just saw a report that the Bills and Bengals are probably not going to continue uh, Monday's game. So Wait, what they're do you mean? going to just—they're probably just going to avoid it, and and it's going to go off winning percentages. So the Bills and Bengals will have a 16-game season, and wow. It's trending that way. Uh, It was just, you know, Pro Football Talk just reported that. So it's not official, but that's kind of where where we're at. Interesting. So, all right, that's it for us. Uh, Thanks for listening, and we will talk to you next week.